Rebel Force Radio presents... Incoming! Declassified. So, this is where the fun begins. A roundtable discussion about Star Wars The Clone Wars. Here we go. Need laser collectors! Maximum firepower. All batteries return fire. Oh, yes, sir! Now it's time for Clone Wars Declassified. Oh, boy, just when we thought we were out, they pull us back in. Clone Wars Declassified? Who would have thought? We'd be back talking about new Clone Wars, but we are. And the big bomb that was dropped at StarWars.com, the Clone Wars Legacy, and uh, not one, not two, not three, but four episodes, I guess we can call them episodes, of the Clone Wars released. This is what might have been, what could have been, and what is. And the future of the Clone Wars uh, in its uh, rough form, we'll say. But still, uh, nonetheless, very, very compelling and interesting stuff. And we've got a fabulous panel here, a more intimate panel than we're used to. But this is going to be great to talk about these episodes. And uh, with me, we'll start off my good friend and yours from Chicago, Jimmy Mack. Hey, Jason. Hey, Star Wars fans. We're back. We didn't think we'd be back, but here we are. Yeah, the Clone Wars legacy continues. Uh, We saw it continue via the Dark Horse comics with Darth Maul, son of Dathomir. And uh, the upcoming uh, book release coming from Delray that's going to be based on Clone Wars scripts uh, featuring Ventress and uh, Quinlan Voss, And uh, that's called Dark Disciple. And that will be coming, uh, I believe, next summer. But boy, oh boy, I wasn't expecting this one. This is the Crystal Crisis on Utapau. And it's uh, complete episodes as far as I'm concerned. However, the animation itself is not complete. We're seeing- no, it's like watching South Park. A little bit. You know what? It's it's better than South Park. It's much more sophisticated and technologically advanced than what we see on the screen <laughs> of South Park. That's true. That's true. Uh, also joining us, um, boy, we love it every time he can come on the program, and a more fitting guest we could not find for this episode, Kyle Newman, back with us here on Rebel Force Radio. Kyle, welcome. Hey, Hey, guys. How are you? Fantastic. Did you think we were going to be here again, all assembled around the, uh, the, big, the big table? Yeah. Were you as surprised as we were? Very surprised. Um, uh, mildly surprised. I knew there was some buzz about trying to take some of the materials that were unfinished and seeing what they could do with them. Obviously, we saw the um, Darth Maul material surface in the form of a... Um, comic book, and I knew they were sitting on some other stuff. Um, there was one arc that I uh, partook in, but we still haven't seen that. So they have some more material. So yeah, there's uh, I th- I th- there's a Boba Fett there's a Boba Fett story out there. I th- I believe right. Yeah, there's there's, a, there's something like that. I think it's a Boba Fett. I know he's in it or something. I know he appears. Daniel talked about that too. Yeah. Um, the the, the episode the, that you're I don't know in. The arc is, but what's that? I don't know what the arc of the story is. Yeah. You know, the main plot of it is, um, but he's in it. Now I have so, not read the uh, the Son of Dathomir comic. Have either one of you guys picked that up? I got to admit, I've been waiting for the trade pa- paperback uh, compilation. So yeah, I am not read it yet. No. Yeah. Ditto that. 
And uh, I mean, the book looks interesting, but I mean, this is the first time that we've seen um, really a a more proper translation of a of a Clone Wars story. And I, I, what do you guys think? Do you think that there's more out there in terms of in this format, or yeah, you do think so? Yeah, yeah, definitely, I do. Definitely, I do. I, I don't think this is the only story arc that had reached this level of completion as far as the production process goes. I think there's more in the well, and I definitely think that Boba Fett story arc is probably in a similar similar state from the things that I've heard behind the scenes. But there might be resistance in releasing that because it could conflict with future releases. Maybe a Boba Fett standalone film. Or something along those lines. But I think, you know what, sooner or later, I think that uh, uh, sphincters are going to loosen up. And, uh, <laughs> I, I really do. And I, I, I think this material will, will continue. But to- I wouldn't I- want a Boba Fett movie coming out that contradicts what GL set down as his Boba Fett canon. Yeah. So there could be some sensitivity to releasing. There material. could be. But yeah. I don't want that. Even if it didn't come out, people should still look at this as this is what his vision for it was and not think they can do better. Yeah, I don't know if I've really – have we heard from an official source? Is this considered Star Wars canon? I read on Wikipedia that it is, but I was just wondering if uh, maybe uh, Dave Filoni revealed that in his introduction video or anything like uh, that. No, there was the, – the canon were – you know, I think, I think what – what we've got to realize with with the whole canon question is that you know when the when the EU was es- essentially kind of dismantled and given the label legends i think that was probably the only time we're going to hear from official channels the word canon i think that was their that was their stake in the ground that was them saying all right from you know henceforth everything that comes out and these, you know, is going to be part of the uh, the unfolding universe of Star Wars uh, moving forward. Anything that came back came, you know, prior to this is not, with the exception of the Clone Wars. And I, I, I think there's no reason to believe that this is not canon. And so, I, yeah, go on, Jason. Well, I was just gonna, yeah, I was just gonna say, uh, it it doesn't make any sense to me that this wouldn't be just because it's in some sort of you know inferior state in terms of the the production process or what have you i think so if those rules really are in place then there is going to be great sensitivity toward releasing anything that might contradict with future star wars stories that will be released in any medium yeah I mean, it's hard to imagine what a boba fett story in the clone wars could do that would completely turn you know, a potential live action movie upside down on its head it could be what happens in that arc that has ramifications on characters or other characters. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, you on a previous episode, Jimmy, you, you were talking about some canon stuff, and I think you mentioned um, you didn't include the novelizations in what's considered canon. And I was under the impression that novelizations are canon. The only time novelizations fall under that canon umbrella is when the sequences within the novelization excel, itself reflect what we see in the film and According so to, who said this uh, leland said this leland she said this in a series of tweets um gosh earlier i was the one who asked them this a while ago on twitter 
And I think yeah. they said outside of what is obviously contradicted, it's all canon. So uh, Owen and Ben being related ah. is not that moment, you know? Otherwise, it's canon. Oh, I see. So the, you're saying that the novelizations are legit canon except when there's contradictions. From well, how isn't, they, but isn't that what you were saying, Jim? No, no, no. What, see, that's funny because I'm just basically paraphrasing what Leland posted, but it's being sort of taken in two different ways. The way I read Leland's post was anything in the novelization is canon as long as it corresponds with what we see in the film. But that could be a misinterpretation of what he said. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be, yeah, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be right without little guest appearance by the dogs. Uh, all right, well, let's talk about let's let's get into these episodes. So, um, you have a uh, a four episode arc, and we've got Obi Wan and Anakin thrust into this adventure, and and I I got to tell you guys that I didn't miss Ahsoka at all. Is that wrong? I did not miss her one bit in these episodes. I love that they talked about her, but I thought this was just such quintessential swashbuckling adventure fun. The the camaraderie was there. The um, the snappy dialogue was there. I thought this was one of the, the high marks in canonical Obi-Wan Anakin story. I thought it was That's amazing. It, it, so yeah. amazing to hear you say that. So amazing to hear you say that because I was thinking to myself as I watched the final part of this four-part arc that this could be most reflective of how I always imagined the great Obi-Wan and Anakin Skywalker to handle themselves during an adventure as it unfolded while the Clone Wars was going on. This is this is it right here. This is how I always felt like these guys carried themselves on a mission. Mm-hmm. I think it, it's incredibly consistent with what we know about these two characters and what we know about their chemistry together. It had all the elements were there. It was hitting on all cylinders. You had the cynicism of Anakin playing off of the sometimes – school book approach that Obi-Wan would take and Obi-Wan sort of being that mentor, but yet kind of an uncomfortable mentor at times realizing that Anakin himself harnessed so much power and harnessed so much ability. You knew that Anakin or uh, Obi-Wan would be at odds at times, whether or not he is a, a teacher to the student or whether or not they're peers. And you kind of see that back and forth going on here a little bit. They definitely have a lot of chemistry together. And I really love the way that these guys approach this particular mission. It, to me, it really hit the relationship on the hit that nail on the head as far as how I always felt these two guys would be carrying themselves during the clone wars, even going back to, original trilogy era when you knew that Obi-Wan and Luke's father, Anakin Skywalker, we knew that they worked together and they had that, that relationship and they had, they, they relied on teamwork and you see all of those elements hitting on all cylinders in this particular story arc. 
Kyle, did they did they get it right? You know what was amazing? I'm trying to remember. This might be the first time in six seasons that I just felt like it was just Obi-Wan and Anakin together. Right. And see, that's what I thought that while I was watching this. And I'm like, what's I'm just like, I'm kicking myself. I'm like, well, I mean, they, they went, there was episodes where it was just them, but just four right. episodes of them. And it was refreshing. And you know what? It changed my, my frame of reference on this was finally seeing Rebels, which was sensational. And it's so streamlined and there's nothing tangential. And they don't even need like, um, crawl because you know you're just going to be with these characters every week you know whereas clone wars is like there was a cog factory on mutapow you know and then like <laughs> yeah it's like right you, you, to, you had to have all that set up this week jedi master you're gonna die is uh, you know but <laughs> like, who and with rebels you're like i know who i'm with these are my heroes yeah you know these right. are my guys I'm, I'm following this and and it made me realize that we've never we didn't really have well, we knew this. We always analyzed these episodes and said, you know, we wish there was a more streamlined trajectory, something that was building, something that was percolating. So we each season had a purpose to it and it wasn't just an endless war. And we knew where it was going and it started to do that more once it became linear. But even so, they never just focused on these characters or there was always Ahsoka in the middle of it or it was Obi-Wan, you know, chiding him. And this was something brotherly and you understood what they – what they would never become, you know, after this. And they wouldn't go down in history together, you know. It wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there was that scene out in the plains where, you know, it was a very telling scene where he's laying down by the, was it the fire? I couldn't tell. Something was happening. And <laughs> Obi-Wan was going to bed and Anakin was standing under these this beautiful, you know, uh, sky of planet and stars. And I knew it was going to be beautiful. And... um <laughs> And they had this moment. He's like, no, that'll, that'll never happen. You know, it was that moment about. Oh, right, right. If, if you're failing him. And, yes, right. And it was very, it was foreshadowing in a, in a, in a really beautiful way um, and sad way. But it was, it was cool. And you could have those kind of moments. And maybe they were able to do that because they were so late in the game and they knew that, all right, we can do this now in season six or whatever this was supposed to be because – um, we know we're wrapping this up and it can't go on forever and we're closer to Revenge of the Sith. And they couldn't do that stuff early on in the show because you can't do it four seasons later again. You know what I mean? You already did it. So they had to hold off and show restraint on some of these things that tie the characters together and set this stuff up. Um, but it was great to finally see it. And it was because it was just this streamlined thing about our two heroes. Yeah. Jim, what does the... Um I was thinking about this because, you know, you can have a, a relationship with a friend where you use a lot of sarcastic humor back and forth. And, and sometimes it can be a, a symbol of you know, deep affection, trust, etc. But sometimes it can also mean something else. It can mean that they don't know perhaps really how to open up to one another. They don't really know how to... Uh, communicate with each other outside of that sort of guarded, protected, uh, sarcastic humor. Wh- where do you think that falls with Obi-Wan and Anakin there? Do you think there's a little bit of both, or do you think that it's uh, they're, they're hiding some real feelings for each other in terms of maybe 
you're not quite sure about the other one. Well, let's look look at the clues and let's look at what we know. And the place I want to go when I'm thinking about something like that is to Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, because there is the most revealing information about the the characters Anakin and Obi-Wan and how they relate to each other. Anakin has a breakdown, says Obi-Wan's holding him back. He doesn't respect him, doesn't let him find his full potential. Obi-Wan meets with uh, Yoda and Mace and says, you know, he reveals that he might have trouble keeping Anakin in line. He might have trouble containing that power that Anakin has within him he realizes he might be a little over his skis as far as Anakin Skywalker goes. So um, those are the things I look at. You know there's obvious tension between the two. However, being out on the battlefield for the number of years that the Clone Wars took place obviously helped the two grow together and grow up together a little bit. You know, Obi-Wan, sure, he was an adult when he took Anakin under his wing initially, but yeah, he still had a lot of growing up to do, too. And um, and uh, I, I think they, they both sort of lean on each other for those life experiences when they have to share them together. And that's what helped develop their chemistry. So I think that the most revealing information about the relationship between the two comes during Attack of the Clones. But I think maybe they've grown closer throughout the experiences they had on the battlefield throughout the clone wars. Um, so as far as communicating with one another, there is always this sort of layer of, of cynicism or, uh, just plain, you know, poking fun at each other. And, uh, I think that might be, you know, more a result of trying to relieve the tension of being out on the battlefield, you know, mm-hmm. trying to, trying to, you know, uh, get in touch with what makes them human and and sometimes humor is the best defense when you're dealing with uh you know internal psychological issues such as that um really funny to to sort of see how their relationship had developed because uh the clone wars really does help fill in a lot of those blank spots and helps you build this evolution between the two characters so when you watch revenge of the sith again which you and me are going to do very soon with Sam Witwer, Jason. When you watch Revenge of the Sith again, you do feel these characters are way more fleshed out and that their relationship is much more concrete and it has much more consequence when it all goes south during Revenge of the Sith. That, to me, is like one of the greatest things about the Clone Wars series is how it helped further establish the development of these two characters and their relationship with Ah, them. but Kyle, does the Clone Wars do too good of a job of putting Anakin in that position or in that place as a character that we as fans kind of always wanted him to be? I mean, what we what we know of the film Anakin is that he's the he's the temperamental uh, uh, grumpy teenager in Episode Two, and then by Episode Three, he's the he's the emo. Um, battle weary, uh, confused young man. Does this create more separation or less separation between the Anakin of the Clone Wars and the Anakin of Episode Three? More believable or or less believable? I I think overall the series does a really good job of being a connective tissue 
issue. And obviously, you know, Matt Lanter puts his own spin on it, which he's, you know, perfectly justified in doing. Um, you know, had this say it was Hayden Christensen doing the voice as well as performing the character in the two films, you'd see, I think, a very different arc, you know? So part of it has to come through the spirit and soul of the actor playing it. Um, and I think Matt does bring a little more of a of a swashbuckling side, and obviously, and some of the levity he brings to it changes the context and, and also in the way he interacts with all the other people. So it changes his relationship to Obi-Wan. So we have to accept it all as one big canon and we have to accept it all as this are just different aspects of, of Anakin. And I'd like to think that he, he had these sides to him because, um, you know, what we see on film was obviously it was limited because there, he has to tell such a, a grand arc in a short amount of time. And, and these are the layers of his character. So I think overall they do a great service to it. Um, I wouldn't say they contradict or, um, you know, devalue what we see on screen in any way. I still believe Anakin Revenge of the Sith could be the continuation of, of, you know, this portrayal. Yeah. I was struggling with that personally uh, throughout these episodes. I, I felt that it, it actually widened the gap between the Anakin that we're looking at in this, in these particular episodes and the Anakin that we see in episodes. Some three. of these, they were more fun. They were more like throwback swashbuckling. Some of the stuff we got in the properly finished season six stuff, I felt like we got, we got a different mood to Anakin there. So obviously some of the stuff back in Mortis, you know, did, did ah, a great right. job connecting him, you know? So true, I, like I said, true. there were, yes, there were glimpses for sure, but those were heavier. He was dealing with heavier stuff here. He's just fighting, you know, these sugis and these, you know, insectoid, dispensable peons, you know, and that was like heavier stuff where he's, you know, metaphorically living his life in the course of three episodes and his importance in the universe. So they, they have different weight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what I thought was interesting was just from a storytelling point of view, I mean, in addition to character development, but just a storytelling point of view, the way that this sort of bridged the gap between episodes two and three, because you had Obi-Wan on, a, you know, you had both of them in this case, on sort of a, a whodunit detective kind of mission, the way Obi-Wan, we saw him in episode two, and then... You know, the, the, just the design of the characters and the environments that they were in. It was just right out of episode three. Is this the first time that we see Anakin with mullet in Clone Wars? No, no. Did he have mullet at the end of uh, season six? Yeah, maybe just in this uh, unrendered state, his mullet is that much more mulletier. I know. I think he had longer <laughs> hair in this episode. I think the, 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 the Anakin model was going to evolve even further. I think it, you're thinking. So his hair was ending up looking like his Mel Gibsonish hair in uh, Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, yeah. His lethal weapon hair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. I think I think that they they were still evolving the the character model here. Um, it just it to me it, it you know maybe it was being on Utapau or whatever, but I just I thought that it felt very. It was the windy plains of Utapau. Yeah, you know, in, <laughs> very in this, Sithy. In this state. Now, how does this affect Actually. Revenge of the Sith? Um, how does it play out with Grievous and them being dis- them dispatching Obi Wan to Utapau to yeah. confront Grievous? Yeah, that, yeah, I'm yeah, trying yeah. To make this all jive together. Well, I think I, it. I think it's clear, you know, that that Governor Blom, 
um, is, you know, the, the, the government is in league with Grievous. And but when Obi-Wan shows up, why is – and Ren the Sith, then why is he surprised? And he's like, there are many people here. You know, he's like telling him he, – he's like, yeah, I was just here three weeks ago, dude. I know. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there's robots. Yeah, I know. Well, but I – well, yeah, wait a minute, though. You corrupt when I was here last time. Did they you – know? well, but – but, but did they ever see that side? Did Anakin and Obi-Wan ever see the – um yeah, there was that governor that didn't want him there. They felt the shadiness. I mean, well, I think like, they they felt that he didn't want him there. But I mean, I don't know that they ever saw Grievous and the Utapan. Yeah, they did. They, they did, did see them together. They did at the end. Remember, there's that episode. Yeah. There's the the third episode, wasn't it? Where they so yeah, it, or yeah, it was at the end of the toward the end of the third. With all episode. the battle droids and they're at surrounded, three, and the Utapauans are in league with them, and they okay, say, all right, them. I couldn't. Oh, yeah, all right, yeah, I got that. That's that's pretty. Conclusive. It was like the second time in this arc that someone said, "Kill them." Right. Yeah. Recall, um, they did they did capture the. Obi-Wan and Anakin and the crystal after that big chase through the sinkhole. They yep. did they did they surround did them, Grievous, them. Then they and, get surrounded by Utapalans and yes. um, battle, battle droids. And, and, I, I want to say shout out to the Stap. Made it into two episodes. Yeah, that's Stapp. right. Yeah, that was sweet. But I'll tell you, so the governor was there and he, he was communicating with Grievous, and Obi-Wan even said, well, we would like to leave before he gets here. And the governor says, well, you can't leave because we're going to kill you. So that's pretty much how that whole sequence went down. Uh-huh. Normally, I watch these Clone Wars episodes before we do our roundtables two or three times. You know, So right. I am kind of shooting from the hip here. But uh, it feels like there's some contradiction. I'm not putting my finger on it, but I have to go back and look at exactly Revenge of the Sith. It just feels – I mean I guess they picked Utapau. Maybe they had the assets. But does it feel like it's a contradiction that Obi-Wan shows up and he's – they say Grievous is on Utapau? And- I, I couldn't get over it. I, I was thinking to myself, how does this all tie in then with Obi-Wan's eventual turn in Revenge of the Sith? Why Why is it a shock then, Utapau? What's the, it felt like it was new information in Revenge of the Sith. Maybe it was new information to us, but it felt like it was new information to Obi-Wan. Hmm. It's sometimes when you shoehorn this stuff in, there's more. They do it in a creative way where where it makes sense, but I I I don't know if it factored all that in totally. I'm sure it did. Maybe I'm missing something, but it just felt a little bit. What was the name of the Utapan character? Um, Tyan Medin. Yeah, Medin. So you knew the governor was going to get killed off at some point during this story arc because Tyan Medin seems to be the dude in charge of Utapau during the Revenge of the Sith era. So, you know, here we are prior to his, we see what happens to his uh, predecessor. And, uh, you know, he made a deal with Grievous that went south. Yeah, the, Grievous- the, line, the, the line, I think, Kyle, where you're getting caught up is um, when Obi-Wan lands on Utapau, he's 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 greeted by by Tian Medan, and uh, he says, "What brings you to this remote sanctuary?" And Obi Wan says, uh, "The war." And he says, "There's no war here unless you brought it with you." So you know they're creating some distance there between what we see happening in these episodes and and the well, perception that they're just trying to the create. It's the continuation of the same war, which clearly Utapau was just a part of. Yeah, yeah, partake clearly. in politically. 
and physically, I don't know. It just, just feels like pick another planet, guys. <laughs> well, you know, Madden does say that they're, if I remember right, he's saying something about they're being held hostage. So, okay, so you get rid of, you know, a couple of corrupt officials, uh, the governor, and they think they've cleaned their house. Um, but Grievous still has a, you know, he feels that he still has his thumb and he still runs the show there on Utapau. And he comes and sees that, you know, his cronies are no longer in charge, but he's still going to use their, their planet anyway. And he kind of, you know, just uh, muscles over him. I could see that happening. But, I guess so. I mean, they creatively avoided having Anakin fight and meet Grievous again, even though they're in another scene close together. Of course. Um, so they, they find those ways, and they were good about it, that whole, this whole series and still kept it interesting without ever having those two confront. So you still keep that um, confrontation on the bridge in Revenge of the Sith uh, fresh. Um, so they handle all that stuff, I thought, yeah, I thought I thought so too. You know, that had to really be frustrating for these guys all those years doing this. That's stories. why. That's you know, I don't want to get talk about rebels, but that's what is so exciting about rebels. And I've heard mixed things from some people, and I'm shocked because it is you know you have a fresh slate, and it is in a lot of ways because it's different characters. Even though it's a time period we're backed into, it, it's it's a fresh trajectory, and. That sheds a lot of light on you know the creative limitations that the Clone Wars did have, and there's a lot of kudos to Dave and all the writers by you know weaving this stuff so tightly so it fits in between two movies which are very um, explicit in what happens mm-hmm. and who these characters are, and you know they do it in mostly creative exciting ways you know i was hearing dave talk about something you know and he was saying i you know i have to do it and if it's challenging or if it feels hard you know then they make those choices and to and to hold it up to a standard like that where you're always trying to do something that's shocking or surprising or edgy or challenging but also be stuck in the middle of of two um films of canon it's no easy task which is what's going to be interesting to see in rebels when they are unleashed in a way to do whatever because they don't have they're on hamstrung like that right right uh they, they certainly have a, a much longer leash in rebels but i can only talk about these episodes now that rebels is in my head i can only talk about it now that's part of the, the lexicon of star wars so now it has to factor into how i talk about clone wars in an episodic series television manner you know they're, they're gonna invariably be compared as time goes on and um and some people say unfairly or or fairly, but I, I, it can only be fairly. You know, it's a lot of the same creative people, and it's just uh, it's just two different time periods, though. You know, and um, you know, these episodes, uh, I think, are a well, testament this, to how yeah. fun this show could be, and how adventure. You know, it's, it's interesting because we're finally getting these cool adventure episodes, and that feels like what Rebels was also what it's going to be. You know, right, right, and I have to say, you know, I know that the. The everyone praises the animation of the Clone Wars, but I, I I just thought that the production values really suffered with these four. I don't know about you guys, but it just <laughs> yeah, really they're yeah. falling. Hey, maybe it's maybe it's to make Rebels look that much better. It's a real step backwards on the hair, right, Jimmy? <laughs> oh my God! I mean, hair nothing. What about the the mouth? Move your mouth. Dooku's yeah, they all they're, they're all talking like Garfield. 
But Dude, really, uh, beard was um was just his mustache was not doing it. And also, the all the style everyone has these big holes in their shoulders. I don't get this new intergalactic style. <laughs> or when the, uh, the they're next, based on the Hasbro figures. The next, oh, no, yeah, they're based on the new the new uh, zero point of articulation. <laughs> <laughs> the you think about it. There's two Star Wars TV series. You have two Star Wars TV series now. You had you had Clone Wars wrapping up, and you've got Rebels coming out, and there's like four figures on the shelf. It's amazing, isn't Four it? Four figures on the shelf. And yeah. you're talking about you could have had Dark Side Yoda. You could have had basically the wills of the Force as action figures. Yeah. You could have had like Admiral Trench with robotic body parts. You could have Pong Krell. You could have had like all these amazing characters. Nope. Nothing. Yeah, there, no Midnight Madness this month. That's for sure. <laughs> There's not even a, a, a lunchtime madness going on. But, but you, know, you know what, Jason, you bring up a, an interesting point. I mean, it it did take me a little while to get into, you know, just the rawness of this animation and, and, and the, you know, the understanding that this is all very much in an unrendered state. So, I mean, Kyle, you're, you're a guy who sort of knows the ins and outs of the uh, uh, – television and film production what what are we looking at here what exactly is this state of production called what's it all about um well it's kind of you know for for animation what you do you you will map things out and it goes through these evolutionary layers and the way they shoot these shows i mean they build these environments and they move the camera into it and they can almost pick all these different angles to shoot things and the director moves you know that's why there's a lot of great camera movement in these episodes is because they can actually play in an environment that has some tangible shape to it you know they see the structures well i'm gonna have a building here and walls here and i can move it this way and they can have these conversations they're building it as they know what they need and what will look cool and then they can be inspired like you're at a real location because oh here we are we're in the plains and it's going to be open or we're going to have this ridge here or here we are we're in this narrow street and we can move the camera this way and um so they're shooting the show i mean they call it shooting it they you know, he shoots an episode. A director goes in there and with the assets and does it. So what you're seeing is like a. It's almost like an advanced, you know, animatic. It's like a 3D animatic. It's it's right. pre visualization and a lot of you know features. If you're doing this live action, you would carry a lot of these pre vis assets into the to production. A lot of these models would then be carried over, integrated in with your live action elements, and they would gradually take better and better shape and you'd add layers and textures and all that to it. And you keep seeing more refined versions of it up until final, you know, and then you review final and then you'd still have to go put it through all the color timing and everything. So this is, it's a very early stage of it, but what it is, is a testament to um, the actors and I could follow these stories as well as any other episode of Clone Wars yes, yes. because of the way, you know, Dave directs all the actors and their voices and, um, you know, the performances just carried us through it. I knew exactly what was going on. I could tell, I could imagine what it was going to be. And maybe because we're so versed in Clone Wars and the visual language of Clone Wars that I knew what something was going to look like, or I knew how it was going to feel. So I could, um, yeah, I was I was definitely I was filling yeah, I was going to say I was visually I was filling in the gaps quite a bit. Um 
it sometimes the gap came between Anakin's neck and his chin, yeah. which I, which I was, I mean, every time I saw that separation of his head from his neck and you could see his hair from behind that mullet, Jason. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, my God, I, I, I did get used to it after a while. And I'll tell you, yeah. the, strength, the story and the strength of the acting really carries this to make it a solid piece of entertainment, nonetheless, in its raw form. But it, it did take me a couple minutes to get used to it. And once I finally got into the groove with it, I really loved every minute of it. But we weren't looking at the final beautiful shots. Right. What we were looking at was the story beats and the way these episodes are directed in a very um, – it's, it's economical, but it's beautifully economical. You know, All their shots have to be precise. They have to sometimes communicate not just one but two or three things or visually migrate you to a place in the frame where then it's easy to transition to the next thing you have to draw attention to. They're, they're really well choreographed. Spatially, I understand where I am and what's going on even though it was very still rudimentary. And like I could understand the way the action was unfolding. I could understand the way it was directing us the way we were supposed to feel. And it's not about all the the extra pageantry that comes with, you know, the lighting effects and all that stuff that that Joel Aaron brings to it, which is fantastic. Um, well, I think one of the reasons why you could the, tell the- it was going to be that the story was told well. Well, I think one of the reasons why the performances of Matt Lanter and uh, James Arnold Taylor shine through so much is because there's less to distract you and less to detract from it. Um, even the, the, the mix on the, on the vocals wasn't quite as, uh, um, but it was almost produced. always just them. It, it was almost always just It was just, just two characters talking, whereas a lot of Clone Wars yeah. is always like, we go to this room, and now we meet this character, and then we're going to go to Arn Fritas' bathroom spa, and then we're going to go over here, and then we're going to meet this new senator, and this new senator is settling this guy trinkets, and yeah, it was. there's a lot of characters. Yeah, there's a lot of business going on in the background. Corners. Yeah. And this was just like, you know what? We did all that. We're at the end. We got to bring this thing around. We got to get it close to Revenge of the Sith. And let's just focus on Obi-Wan and Anakin and Ahsoka's out of the picture. We can talk about her, but let's just get right back to like some classic core Star Wars heroes. All right. And well, let's talk a little. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the uh, the Ahsoka business, because I thought that that was. You know, we, we wanted one of the one of the crushing things was that we never saw the fallout from that. Even right. in those bonus episodes, uh, we didn't really see Anakin dealing with the loss of Ahsoka. And the first time we hear her name is when he just by instinct, by, you know, uh, habit says, I'll, I'll contact Ahsoka and we'll do this, that and the other thing. And then, you know, Obi-Wan has to. You know, it's kind of like the poor old widow that can't deal with the fact that her husband's gone. You know, um, Ahsoka was like a was like a, another appendage of Anakin, and you know, his. It's like after you have it amputated, it still you still it still itches, and so we hear we hear that, and then we realize that he's blaming himself and blaming the the council, um, and I really thought Jim that it was telling when Anakin just laid it all out for Obi-Wan and said, look what the council did. The first, the first sense that they get that Ahsoka isn't 100% loyal, they completely turn their back on her. 
And that speaks volumes for someone's character, especially when you are in the same situation as that, as that person who is, is victimized by decisions made from the higher-ups in life. Have you ever been sitting in a meeting with your boss and your boss, the phone rings and a boss says, hold on, I got to take this call. Yes, yes, I know. I love you. I love you. Yes. And they hang up the phone and they say, they look at you and go, I hate that person. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right? I have I have been in meetings like that, and so I say to myself, "Well, what do they say? What does this guy say about me when I call him?" <laughs> you know, I mean, that's right. the sort of level of distrust that builds up within you, and uh, you know, the, the the horrifying world of radio broadcasting might have a lot to do with the political world of the Jedi Temple, in the fact that there is no mercy often shown. And Anakin's right; he's thinking to himself, "Boy, oh boy, they turned their back on Ahsoka just like that." When is when when is my number going to be up? Because he already knows that he's dancing on the perimeter of what is morally acceptable for the Jedi and what is acceptable by their law. And he knows that he's, you know, a maverick as far as that stuff goes. He's, he's really, uh, you know, really skating on thin ice. So he knows that the clock's ticking on him. And so he looks at that and he reflects on himself. What I found very interesting, though, is... When Anakin says to Obi-Wan, what if I turn out to be a disappointment? And that word, that term, disappointment, to me, reflects the notion that the Jedi Council considers Ahsoka to be a major disappointment. That's the word on her after she had left the Jedi Temple. That is how tarnished her reputation had become. She's a disappointment, even though they know that she shouldn't have, you know, been. She was Ahsoka left on her own. They, you know, put her through hell, but there was a level of apology going on there where they were going to bring her back and she was going to be accepted again. But she turned her back on the council and walked away. She turned her back on the Jedi lifestyle and walked away. She wasn't banished from the order. It was her own decision. So is that the the disappointment or is it all the stuff that led up to that, the disappointment? How is her reputation being painted in the wake of her leaving the order? And I think Anakin reveals that when – He says, what if I turn out to be a a disappointment? He's saying that in direct reflection to the way that people perceive. Uh, That's that's interesting. I I didn't take it that way. Actually, Kyle, I was looking at it like, is this Anakin's ego getting in the way? Is he really, is this really grief for Ahsoka's loss? Or is this grief for, you know, his own reputation? And uh, the fact that he's perceived as a failure as a master. I think he's he's taking on that burden of uh, a bit of failure as a master. I think he's he's always takes things a little more personally. He's a little selfish, so he has to filter it through him. Um, he's I, he is making it about himself a lot there in that scene. He is. He needs that vindication from Obi Wan. He needs him to say, "You're not a failure, Anakin." You know mm-hmm. he he wants that. He's the kind of guy that needs that a little bit. Um, he needs, I, I, he needs to feel valued. 
invalidated, as you say. Right? Yeah, he's an he's a much more emotional creature than Obi Wan, who's who doesn't need that kind of thing. Um, so that's very clear. I mean, I guess some people I think would interpret. I don't. I know it's not less that it's not that she's a disappointment, but that the whole situation was regrettable. You know, like it didn't. And maybe the maybe some people have to classify it that way and say it was a, it was a disappointment because you know put it on her because she chose to leave and that was her choice and you know Jedi wouldn't have left. You know, maybe it's that kind of perception but i don't think in general they would classify it as her fault they all wanted her back i think yeah i i think if mace or if yoda were were to talk about it i think they would say it was the will of the force that this that this happened because it it uh it, it exposed a weakness in ahsoka that she couldn't bounce back from and she left the order and if she was willing to leave the order then how good was she? Yeah, there is that. And Anakin obviously feels the burden of that because he was the person entrusted to train her. And, you know, he was maybe too much of a a neophyte um, Jedi to become a master. And obviously everything Anakin does, he's, he's, he's a first or he's early or he did it a little different or he, he, you know, gets viewed extra carefully because He's an anomaly. So he, it's justified why he looks at himself like that because he knows he's different than everybody else. He, he got in differently. He's like the kid that doesn't belong there in a way, but he's there and he gets special mm-hmm. treatment, but they don't want to give him special treatment, but they have to give him special treatment. It's this paradox. And so he can only look at it himself as, you know, is everyone judging me in this instance too? Am I getting extra magnified? I mean, he knows his reputation as being, you know, um, headstrong and – you know, he just does what he wants to do, and he's a maverick in that Qui-Gon sense in a lot of ways, and he's kind of uncontrollable and slightly unpredictable. So he's very much aware of how he's perceived, and he knows people talk about him. And, I, and that all feeds into who, why he um, ends up doing what he does in Revenge of the Sith, because he knows they never fully trust him. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that there is – you can't separate – the, the or or, or uh, minimize the role that ego plays in a lot of this and and he transferred much of that to Ahsoka. Jim, I think one of the reasons that Ahsoka left was her own ego. She she couldn't get over it, and um, I think an Obi Wan would have accepted the Council's uh, position. And as he said, uh, I, uh, you know, I can't say that some of the things that happened weren't regrettable, but at the end of the day, it was her decision to leave. I think he would have been able to put his own ego aside, whereas Ahsoka couldn't do that because she she was brought up by by Anakin, who feels that the ends justify the means and that. She wasn't going to she wasn't going to eat crow and come back. Right. You know, you could call it ego. Um, I, I prefer to call it more of a. A sense of self-preservation, where she realized that the place she she previously had felt the most safe in the world, the Jedi Temple, had suddenly become this house of horrors for her, where she, you know, had to go through all these just horrific events, um, you know, throughout that whole process of the trial and everything else, and, and the distrust and the the fact that you know she felt like everyone 
that she knew in her life were turning their back on her. So she was left with no other choice to help, you know, defend her well-being. She had to get out of there. I, I don't blame her. And yeah, I mean, so like I said, uh, ego would propel self-preservation, but uh, definitely I think it was more a case of that. With Could the force? Could the force be guiding Ahsoka? Again, to Jason to, I mean, said that's what Yoda and Mace would say. It was the will of the force. Perhaps she was being talked to by the force. Remember, Ahsoka has demonstrated the ability to see things before they happen. She can do that. That that's, you know, something that we all assume every Jedi can do, but there's that's a specific trait shared by only the strongest of Jedi, I believe. And Ahsoka does have that ability. It, it gives her that feeling in her gut. And I, maybe it was the Force talking to her saying, you got to go. Because, hey, look what happens in the Jedi Temple yeah. months later during the events of Revenge of the Sith. Well, She's it is the Force. She is, she is so justified in leaving the Order at that time. She is jumping off the Titanic, my friend. I would love to see, though, that a chapter – somewhere in the future of Star Wars, future from this timeline, that vindicates. She was actually, there's got to be a lesson learned in that, that she she was salvaged. Her life was salvaged. Her lessons, what she is a living, you know, holocron of information that everyone else was extinguished and she's still here. And she, because of their folly, was able to remember the good of the Jedi and the things they did right, and also see very clearly the things they did wrong. And she carries that information forward. So I would love to see her. Maybe she comes into Rebels. But there is value in this character. And whether it's the Force or not, like I was going to ask you is, how many times do you think like a Jedi coincidence happens? And a Jedi is like, oh, it's the Force. Mm. That's the Force. The way people are like, the way, you know, karma exists in this level where if you, you know, my philosophy, I know karma, I believe people make karma exist. In a lot of ways, because you don't hold the door for somebody, and then somebody cuts you off, and you're like, "Oh, that's karma." You know, it's karma because you put the meaning there, versus like it actually being the fate of the universe, like a bad Chris Pine movie making something happen. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, and does that happen? And how can a Jedi distinguish between the coincidences of the universe and the Force? Well, you know, it's the lesson of Qui-Gon Jinn. Your focus determines your reality, and you have to put faith in that. You know, Qui-Gon had the best mullet, and he also had the best life, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, his <laughs> philosophy was as strong as his mullet. And I like what you guys were talking about with, with FJ the other day with Qui-Gon and the importance of those those Clone Wars episodes and seeing stuff like that, seeing stuff like this in the way it really – it's the stuff where, like, why are we getting it now? Well, we had to get it now because it ties in much more closely with Revenge of the Sith. But the weight of those episodes, too, and the way it factors in to the ramifications on the rest of the galaxy. I mean, it's it's really cool that, you know, Ahsoka's out there and these characters are talking about it. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 um, I struggle with... I struggle a little bit with the idea that wouldn't Vader, if he's going to root out the Jedi, wouldn't he go after Ahsoka or would he not consider her a threat or would he be too sentimental over her? Well, I always um, told you what I thought should happen is 
the Clone War should have continued after it ended. Yes. After yes. the Revenge of the Sith ended. And this next season would have been, you know, Revenge of the Sith happened. And then you see, like, the last skirmishes, things cleaning up. They're hunting down some of the Jedi that we've come to know. That Jave has done this great work meeting and enriching all these characters that were just people sitting on a council that were being made fun of on a Saturday Night Live episode. We actually got to know these people, and they went on adventures. Now we're going to see Anakin and others have to hunt them down and kill them. And Ahsoka is on the run, and she is this living, um, like I said, living, you know, bottle of information about everything. Yeah, she's like a time capsule. And the Emperor says, you know, your final thing is you got to go kill her. She knows too that would have been awesome. Or he has, you know, or, or the or the fact that she betrayed. I mean, she didn't betray, but well, in a way, she did. She betrayed the Jedi Council. She turned her back on them, and he would, would go to her and say, "Look, like you know, come with us." You know, he would try. And she's would like, he hey. or would? Well, I mean, he I, would. You think so? In in light of who Anakin, Anakin is not. At Revenge of the Sith time, he's he's more confused than he is hardened Sith. He's more so broken that he has to pick one path to go without exploding or imploding. And he's not like a fully devout believer. He never – he joins them because he doesn't know what else to do. Everything falls apart around him because of him mm-hmm. and he doesn't know what else to do but follow this person who could be the only salvation which is going to bring him closer to well, what he hopes is love. You're, you're right, and I think that, and he I would, mean, that that I, turning I, point that turning point is is killing Mace. I mean, I think once he, I mean, he was killing Mace to protect Palpatine to preserve Palpatine's knowledge that could potentially save Padme. So he wasn't saving Palpatine for the sake of saving do, Palpatine. It had everything yeah. to do with saving. He was he didn't kill Mace Windu to save Palpatine. He killed Mace in an attempt to save his wife. Padme, but once he did that, yeah, the Jedi. He doesn't. There was no going back for him after that, though. Says that. I that because he sees them trying to kill the Emperor, and it's like the staging of that. But it really is all about self-servicing. He's not doing it because he he's saying these Jedi are really bad people, and I'm going to make a moral decision here. Right. That's right. Because he wants something. Because he wants to perpetuate love. So he would see Ahsoka, and he'd be like, "You should come with us." That's the idea. Like, and I would have Maul kill Ahsoka because Maul needs to service something and (laughs) Maul would kill her. And then Anakin would kill Maul and he would, he would basically deepen Anakin. He's so much more cut off now that he's even more his because he puts him in this position where he gets rid of Maul and he makes Anakin lose something that's so important to him and shows him how he can't go that way. And he can't turn his back on him. So he solidifies his grasp on him. It would have been a cool final season. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the it's the old trick. I mean, if you want to, um, you know, it's like the bad boyfriend. What does he start to do? He starts to isolate the girl and cut her off from her friends and her family. And so she becomes completely uh, dependent on him. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that the the emperor, he staged the mother's capture, Shmi's capture and torture. How could he orchestrate something like that with savages? Like How could he orchestrate the the birth of a, a force nexus? 
to create he if he's sitting in an opera house saying i create we created life itself and looking at him do you not think that he had any hand in the steps and formation that would then turn that asset that force creation to his own he's the he's like the, the most sinister plotted person ever i i mean i can't think he didn't because anakin probably says i miss my mother i think about her nonstop. So he's like, I'm gonna go yeah. fucking kill your mother. Yeah, I no, I, I'm I'm with Kyle on this. I've always I've always thought that I, I never thought it was something quite so um mystical as him, you know, potentially orchestrating this through the forest. I just thought he would, would probably Tuskins, do it through he would probably would do it Tuskins through bounty hunters and scumbags and money and there would have to be direct Tuskins, influence. What's the benefit of keeping Shmi Skywalker captive for thirty days? To the Tuscans. Yeah, but the, the Tuscans are savages. How do you coordinate anything with them? Well, you why are savages to- keeping prisoners? Like, wave after wave of, of Tatooine people come to go save her and they're keeping her? Like, what to what end? Like, they're not leveraging anything against Klieg Lars. It, you know what I mean? It's just all the, the machinations of the Emperor. There's no purpose to it other than it to serve him falling into the grasp of the emperor, you know, and that's, it's it's cutting him off. It's cutting him off from any, and you know, any other form of support. And that's what I think a final season of Clone Wars after Revenge of the Sith would have been. It would have been the final suffocation of Anakin Skywalker, because like I said, he's not that he's not the hardened Sith yet. He's lost. So we would have seen the hardening of him, the solidifying of the Vader persona beyond just wearing a suit. So he could go be the conduit of evil he needs to go hunt down the rest. And you would have seen him doing this stuff. But the one that means the most is Ahsoka. And so she's this valuable, tangible that's still out there, like this this thing that needs to be addressed. So somewhere in the Star Wars timeline, someone's got to address this. And I think it has to be addressed with a Vader story and Ahsoka. So get to work, story group. (laughs) Come on. Step it up. Step uh, it up, uh, it would, but I, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see that. And I, in Kyle, I was always a big fan of that. That suggest that you had that the Clone Wars actually flip and after a, a season break, go into post Revenge of the Sith mode and fill in some of those. That's those the gaps. greatest regret I have with this. There, you, you, yeah. it's, you've only shown me two acts of the story. I have not seen the third act. The third act is when the shoe drops, when everything happens, how did it affect the characters that just spent six seasons with what this is the third act of their life that I'm not seeing. And they canceled the show so prematurely. It's so frustrating or maybe it should have been plotted. So we had one less season of nothingness in the middle and we don't go to the void. And we had a season that had some real, character ramifications where you saw the after effects of this stuff like bail organa what's happening to these characters that we just spent so much time with learning about they're just abandoned now well i think that's what's just right. frustrating it is it is i think rebels is going to try to scratch that itch as much as possible i but, hope so and but, dave hinted recently about something about darth vader which sounds cryptically like he's coming back but like right, maybe yeah. they'll be able to do that maybe we'll get ahsoka maybe they'll yeah. I'd love to see Ahsoka versus the Inquisitor. You know, who knows? Well, you would think that, you know, should should Kanan ever need some guidance beyond that uh, holocron with, or that, I guess it's not a holocron, whatever that is with uh, Obi-Wan in it. 
um, the message from Obi-Wan. Beyond that, you know, Ahsoka's got to be one of a very short list of Jedi that are still out there. Or I shouldn't say that she's a Jedi, but certainly Force sensitives who have been trained in the Jedi arts out there to, to help him along the way. Yeah. Who else would it be? Quinlan Voss. No, he, <laughs> he blew up in Revenge of the Sith. Tara Sanube. <laughs> Tara Sanube. Whatever happened to that guy? I love that guy. Wait, Quinlan Voss, you said? Yeah, Voss. He, he died in Revenge of the Sith, right? No. I thought that there was a scene of a Jedi fighter that was that was blown up and it was rumored to have been Voss on uh, what was that planet? Uh, the word was he was on uh, Boss Pity. Boss, boss Pity. In the in the in the in the comic adaptation, I believe they they may have killed him off on Kashyyyk, but then. It was you know the expanded universe that revealed he actually wasn't killed off on Kashyyyk, and I think he and Ventress went off and got a timeshare on Maui or something crazy like that. No, in the series that that um, the live action series, Voss was supposed to have a part to play. Really, in the live action series, so he did not die in George's eyes. George's eyes. Well, he certainly didn't die in the film, and he certainly wasn't even in the film, and so. But those are never happening. So he's dead. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Yes, wait a minute. Hold on. Not Boz Pity. Boz Pity was another. Um, that was another reference from Attack of the Clones, a verbal reference. No, the Boss Pity reference comes from dialogue in Revenge of the Sith. Oh, you're After, right. It did. It comes in that room in said, the debriefing room. Right. Yes, said, that's uh, where they mentioned Boss Pity. And he says Master Boss has uh, – he did something on Boss Pity. But that's actual dialogue from Revenge of the Sith. So we don't see Quinlan Boss in the film, but there is a reference to a Master Boss. Yes, but I I thought that there was um, that his his fighter was shown in episode three, or there was a Jedi fighter that was shown in episode three, and it was supposedly his. It was retconned to be that, just like well, Plo Koon's fighter gets blown up um, on Kato Nemoidia. Yeah, correct? yes, that, and isn't there more than one? That's obvious fighter mm. in the shot. Aha. Jason's on this. This is something like when they uh, retconned Return of the Jedi and said one of the pilots in the A-Wing was Tycho Selchu from the Expanded Universe. Oh, and that Mara Jade was in Jabba's Palace. And Mara was in Jabba's Palace, exactly. Exactamundo. I have to go back and watch that that end of Episode 3. I thought that that was uh, the end of Quinlan Vos, but I... I, I, I could I, may, I could be mistaken. If it happened, it was a deleted scene, but it didn't happen in the movie on screen for sure. Okay. Promise. <laughs> okay. This Let's might see. be Jason Cannon. It may be. It, it may, may be. be. Let's see. Um, ah, here we go. <laughs> After the execution of Order 66... Voss was ambushed by clone troopers. He was believed to be dead, 
but emerged badly wounded and went into hiding in the jungles of Kashyyyk. Yes. Uh, I, there is a shot in episode three of Jedi Starfighters being shot down in Kashyyyk, and it was speculated at one point that, that one of those was, was his. But Aha. I don't want to beat I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but Well, I, I think that the comics adaptation by Dark Horse tells a different story. And of course Dark Horse would be totally vested in that character and what he's doing during Revenge of the Sith because he was a character created by Dark Horse. So. Oh of, of course. Of course, but I guess he's in episode one, right? Uh, well, yeah, they say, you know, he, his look is based on someone sitting there at a table behind Sebulba yeah. at the uh, Moss Espa um, Cafe, that outdoor cafe. They're all out there eating yeah, out. So the, so the esteemed Jedi Master, stranded on a planet, happens to wander by him after an altercation between this force prophesized boy and a Doug. Doesn't notice his buddy there. Doesn't say, hey, I need a couple 10, 20,000 credits. <laughs> Yeah, doesn't even see him. Well, th- maybe that's Voss. Yeah, that's was, definitely uh, him. <laughs> maybe Voss was like he saw him first and was like looking the other way, like that dead beat Qui Gon. He still owes twenty bucks. Cover. Don't blow my cover, dude. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Just trying to eat some soup here, some whoopee whoopee soup. <laughs> it looks. It looks like the ultimate warrior from WWF back there sitting there. So true. So true. <laughs> it reminds me of. All right. Well, okay. So beyond um, the confusion about really how this plays into episode three in terms of the uh, uh, the fate of Utapau, uh, we, we do get a lot of payoffs in this episode. We get to see Anakin dealing with Ahsoka's desertion of the of the order. We get to see uh, uh, some really, really phenomenal uh, character development between Obi Wan and Anakin. Uh, the 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 battles probably were going to be amazing. It's really hard to kind of make a judgment on those. Um, it really is a shame that we're not going to see these episodes. Maybe we need to do a Kickstarter campaign to get the these episodes the finished. Would have been amazing. The, yeah, let me. I I wanted to bring that up before we we, we wrap up. The stuff with the crystal was was. Was very very cool. I I liked that a lot, um, especially when Yoda talked about you know the 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 legends of these giant uh, kyber crystals. Um, the 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 thing that I thought was a cop out though, and Clone Wars has done this a couple of times, like with uh, uh, Kyle. You and I were talking before we started with the sundered heart, with uh, with Jango's helmet and all of that. I thought this would have been much more impactful if they would have committed to this being the crystal that fuels the massive weapon on the Death Star. Instead, we're left with Yoda saying, another one they will find. You know, I mean, just make it the damn crystal from episode four. It was that was a sundered heart type uh, cop out. It it was a total cop out. I don't know why they don't do these things. It would would be great if they just made it clear that that was the or you just have this cool shot at the end rather than the Jedi deliberating of, you know, Imperials or the, the you know, the 
whatever people showing the trade federation showing up and collecting it from the debris. Obviously it's right. so strong that it doesn't get destroyed, but then you know, oh no, they got it and what are they going to do with it? And just I kept waiting for that, Kyle. I kept waiting for that moment. I thought that's what was going to happen. They pick it up yep. and they know they like the emperor will be most pleased we got it, you know, like so the Jedi I think they were okay, but really the empire got their hands on the ultimate key to powering their mega crystal. I was talking about this with Paul and that was his theory. And then I watched the episodes and I was like, Oh my God, it's so obvious that this is the crystal. Like, yeah, it's green. It's yeah. giant. You refract it. People are disintegrating and disappearing. Um, even the explosion was reminiscent of what happens. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was it was so clear, and uh, you know the kyber crystal itself. When did that originate? Is Splinter in the Mind's Eye was the first verbal mention of a kyber crystal outside of his early drafts? Correct. Yeah, right, right. I mean, the kyber crystal goes all the way back to George's original story treatment for A New Hope, but he it was first publicly known in you're right, Kyle. Splinter in the Mind's Eye, where the uh, woman uh, Hala she had. Hala, she had a kyber crystal, a, a shard of a kyber crystal, and um, you know this this had such such power, just a small shard of it, that Luke Skywalker found himself in a race with Darth Vader on the planet Mimban, trying to track this thing down. But of course, it does have its origin in those original story treatments for Star Wars all the way up through like the third draft it was still a major part of the story and then with the clone wars we see kyber crystal being brought back it's spelled differently i, I believe the fir- the way they spelled it the first time was like k a i b u r r and then yep. now yep. with the clone wars they spell it K A Y B E R. No, no, no K Y B E R. Oh, K Y B E R. K Y B E R as well. And but so, here's the question. Though. And, and what they, they said, you know, in the the younglings arc, though, they did reveal that the 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 kyber crystal does power the lightsaber. And there were other crystals in the past that were said to have that ability to power a lightsaber. It was like a, a Adian Adigan. A Deegan crystal. And then yes. now, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, as far as canon goes, we have to assume that the Kyber crystal is what powers a lightsaber due to the younglings arc. When I used to play the Star Wars role playing game, getting your hands on an Adegan crystal was like, whoa. Yeah. That was, that <laughs> um, was big time. That was big yeah. time. That was like next level. And then um, <laughs> I got the crystal. Game but- over. But so, okay, so it is clear then that the kyber crystal fragments of it are smaller versions of it are the only thing that power lightsabers is what the new canon is. I I would, yeah, I would say, I would say so. I think that if anything else could, you know, with the exception of like a dark saber or, you know, maybe sort of a. What's interesting is it does it does tie back into all of George's original stuff, which is you know the crystal being so important, even though it's manifested in the lightsaber that way, it's still like the the, the Death Star is just um, a mega force user weapon. You know what I mean? It's powers right through it's it. A, it's it's a, it's a giant stuff. lightsaber. You're putting energy <laughs> through it, and it's sending it through it. It's just like what a lightsaber does. Only you have this mega crystal. It's yeah. it's almost the exact same. I mean, there's nothing. It is. I think. I think it's. Uh, I I think it's one of the coolest things to come out of the Clone Wars is that this the super laser 
you know, what, so what great cool. irony that that is actually fueled by, you know, the the, the substance that is is the life of like we were every Jedi. The show, you know, that, that shot, they pull up at the end and they're standing in the center of the council room and it's round like the Death Star. And it's, I think it's visually was going to hint, you know, mm-hmm. like think what's what they could they use it for that's big and round. Well, I thought and it was it, it was hard to tell from the, you know, the, yeah. the the crude animatics. But but I thought that they were really trying to create a much more um, uh, the, the environments, I thought, were very much more along the lines of of Revenge of the Sith and uh, in those interiors. And and I, I just for the life of me, I cannot figure out why they didn't just commit and make that instead of just making the assumption that, you know, they would, they just go off and find another one. Mm-hmm. There was really no purpose for the whole search. Why was Grievous searching for it? You know, I mean, obviously it is, it is something that can power a, a weapon in a serious fashion, but we weren't really given any specifics. It would have been much more fulfilling and gratifying as a fan to hear some sort of relation to the Death Star Super Laser, but we just didn't get it. No. Fill, fill in the blanks, friends. I do got to say the character of Grievous, though, was quite effective in this arc. He was menacing. He was intimidating. And he was downright cold-hearted, dangerous murderer. You know, I mean, he was just, as soon as he was finished with any of these people on the planet Utapau, done, wiped out. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. He was, he was cleaning up his, his the tracks that he was leaving behind instantly. And that's the type of Grievous I really like to see. I don't like to see the cowardly Grievous. I don't like to see the, <coughs> you know, bronchitis Grievous. <laughs> I like to see a really tough, menacing, mean Grievous. And I thought that they brought it full on in this episode. And I thought Matt Wood was fantastic once again. Oh, no doubt. I was thinking that myself. He was actually kind of scary in in contrast to the battle droids, which just never pose any kind of a threat at all. Um, there's There's really nothing. I mean, once we got to know them in episode one, and then all the way through the Clone Wars, they just uh, they're they're just punchlines. I mean, they just there's nothing at all menacing or. Uh, uh, <laughs> what was that? Did Kyle just get frozen in carbonite? I don't know. This is a whole different kind of commentary. It really is. It goes from your future. Ah, I sense. Saying that it's bad to look at pictures from set that are leaked because people (laughs) get upset about it and it spoils things. And then you ruin things for the future that could be super epic surprises. And then you're not going to be surprised when you go to see Star Wars because you've seen all the leaked photos. It's really upsetting. <laughs> all right. There we go. No, we, we, we want a spoiler-free Jamie King as we cruise into Episode 7. Spoiler-free. Spoiler-free. Yeah. No TMZ photos. No blah, blah, blah photos, no drone photos, no whatever photos. We can all just keep our panties like, like, like in a bunch for a little bit and, and wait until the actual movie comes out and have our minds be blown, okay? Be blown away. 
I don't know. I'm kind of glad. I'm actually kind of glad that I heard about this uh, this big bombshell because if I would have been in the theater, I, I see. I need. I felt like I needed to be prepared for this. I I was. That's my point. You kind of got to be prepared for some of these things. No, no. She doesn't know what we're talking about, guys. Okay. Well, I won't say it. I won't say it. But it's. I. No, I you don't know. You don't know. Yeah. I don't want to know. You know why? There you go. Because movies are supposed to be magical. And I want my Star Wars experience with my son when he's one year and a half, mm-hmm. seeing Star Wars for the first time in the theater after he just went to It'll his first. Two. Oh, God damn it. You timed it out wrong. You <laughs> <laughs> said it was a year and seven months. Not, I was like a year and a bit. He was. Um, no, we timed out the date. We've been we have like a date clock counter downer. No, it's going to be two years and two months. Well, that's uh, good. Perfect. He already went to Rebels. Right. You guys took him to the Rebels premiere. He was like so on his knees the whole time just watching. That was his first premiere. That was the first time I let any press take pictures of him. Wow. And he was into it. Did he enjoy being around it's all the quit. You mean eyes glued to like the screen into it? Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. He's so by the James time- Knight as in Jedi Knight. And he has a lightsaber. He got a lightsaber at the event. So he's pretty fascinated by the lightsaber. He's 11 months, so he's he's. When he was born, advanced. my doctor, my OBGYN, Topher Grace, um, <laughs> was supposed to because Topher was this like the surrogate because Kyle was might not have like made it back in time. So it was like Lana Del Rey and Topher Grace at my bedside, and then Topher kept telling my OBGYN to say that when the baby came out, that he had a high midichlorian count. And so my 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 doctor was like, I midichlorian count, <laughs> and 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 then he's like, no, a high midichlorian count. Don't forget to tell Kyle your son has a very high midichlorian count. And so my doctor, the baby comes out. Kyle finally makes it after twenty six hours of labor, and he comes out. He's like, Kyle, your son has a very high midichlorian count. Count. <laughs> By the way, it's a boy. It's right. Like <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we know he's got a high midichlorian count. He's your son, so of forget course. about it. So that's great. So you, you're, like, really excited, though, to expose him, give him his really first great Star Wars experience in the movie theater with Episode Seven. So spoiler. Are you kidding me? It's a dream come true. Yeah, it is. How are you going to stop? It was, it was literally a dream come true. And it was, like, so amazing, like, bringing him to the premiere and everything. And they were, like, you know, Tracy and Dave. And they're, like, oh, my God, thank you so much. And they were so excited. And, like, like no one could believe it because I'm such a strong – I was such a strong um, – advocate and supporter to push through the no kids policy in which um, basically we got everyone in the United States to say that they couldn't publish pictures of children under the age of 18 without permission um, from the parents, even though, you know, they're just like celebrity kids. But we always want our child to be affiliated with something that it has such a universal spiritual message, something that, you know, is an integral part of our family that, I grew up with and Kyle grew up with and you know what I mean? Like the, the, the sweetest thing was the other week is that Topher came over um, and he's the godfather of James Knight and he came over with a very special package and he gave, gave James Knight his very own Star Wars sheets from when he was a kid. 
Oh, wow. From when he was a little boy. You washed him, right? And it was like passing over like, I mean, I, I burst into tears because I couldn't believe that. I mean, you know that we all know what that means. We know sure. what that means. Right, right. Like That's saving cute. those sheets and then passing them on to like your godson or to like someone else is like a very, very moving, like powerful experience for anyone that's a fan we know like that that's a childhood memory that you never let go of and that he gave it to our son and now he plays on them every single day and it's like you know it's just a really beautiful thing that our son gets to grow up with with star wars in his life and and all of these amazing things and it's just it's just such an exciting time you know and so i don't believe in spoilers because I feel very upset that people are stealing things from the set. And I feel like there's a reason why we make movies and, and why we make movie magic. But I also understand why people want to see spoilers because of their level of enthusiasm and how excited we all are. You know, I'm just trying to keep the present in the box till Christmas, which is very hard for me because I always so give Christmas presents is early. Like 422 days. I know. Kyle knows I always give presents early. <laughs> but this one, I want to be like the most epic present of all. See, I think so- if, I, if I wasn't doing this, I would probably be more on the spoiler free side of things. But yeah. I've, oh I've, I've just sort of given myself over to the fact that I really have no choice. I'm going to hear this stuff. With what you do, with what you do and like how amazing you guys do it, you have to be on top of it. You're the you're the only true valid source for any information for anything regarding Star Wars. You know that I tweet that and I say that all the time. Like any Star Wars fan that I meet or talk to, I always say you guys are like the best. And Aww. like the you know, it, it, it's you know, the, like you have to have content on your show and the way that you guys talk about it and discuss it in a really like important way is is you know, I think it's a necessity and something that all fans out there, which are all over the world for the most like, you know, the movie that everyone cares about is really important. It's just for me, I just get kind of like bummed out, like I don't wanna like look at anything because I want to experience that for the first time with my son. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. I want to, I want to share that experience with him. So when Kyle's looking up spoilers online, does he have to maybe go in the backyard or something with his iPad or do you yell at him ever for looking at that stuff? Honestly, I've been shooting like 16 hours a day and sleeping like three hours a night for like working so hard on my series mm-hmm. that I, don't see anything online. Like I legitimately don't see anything online and I don't go on to like any sites. Right. So, you know, I usually don't have, um, it, it doesn't really come to that. Uh, but the couple times that he's tried to show me, I have asked him to please refrain. Put your spoiler away. Put the spoilers <laughs> in the spoiler jar. <laughs> awesome. Well, so and what did you think of? What did you think of Star Wars Rebels? I thought it was amazing. I, I thought I thought it was so great. It was so cool to meet Simon Kimberg and um, to to be there with Dave and to you know support this new venture. And it was I, I thought it was beautiful. And I really love the characters a lot. 
um, it's just really exciting to see like the saga continue. You know, obviously when things disbanded, I it was very sad and bittersweet, and it was really cool to see another animated series come about. Um, and you know, now that certain, you know, I told Dave, you know, obviously give me a call when you're ready. Um, because I would love to be a part of that just as I was on Clone Wars, you know? Excellent. Excellent. Because you were more than just Aura Singh on Clone Wars. You voice so many different characters. You have such versatility when it comes to that sort of thing that I think they can easily find a place for you to, to, uh, to uh, become a character in Star Wars Rebels. So I, I certainly hope that they bring you back and find occasion to bring other Clone Wars actors back into for the sure. Yeah, and it was such, honestly, it was such an honor to be, to play the Force Priestesses, to, to go in that booth and play those five voices that completed the, the final arc for the clone, the last produced George Lucas, you know, series was a really, um, it, it was a really, uh, it was probably one of the best moments of my career as, as an artist. So, wow. um, you know, that I'll never, ever, ever forget that. So, you know. Well, you know, as far as the mythology of Star Wars goes, those characters you played, those priestesses, have such such huge weight and impact on everything we know about what makes up the Force. And the Force, of course, is to me the backbone of Star Wars. So Absolutely. Yeah, to to have involvement in such a, a, a character that would have such sort of impact, that's that's huge. Yeah, that was crazy. That that blew my mind. That blew my mind. It was awesome. But Ooh. I just want to come on and tell you guys I love you all. Oh, thank you. Love you too. We and, love you. Um, and you're you're awesome and hard to Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'll so speak to you guys soon. Okay. Awesome. Bye. Thank you. All right. May the force be with you. May the force be with you. Well, it's going to wrap things up here for Clone Wars Declassified. Forever? Probably not. Probably not. Not going to say that again. Who knows what the future will bring. I would love to see more of these episodes brought out this way. Uh, even though it does take a few minutes to get adjusted, before long you're back with your old friends and uh, it's like no time has passed and it's... As Kyle said, how refreshing was it just to see a good old-fashioned Obi-Wan and Anakin adventure story? It felt familiar, yet unfamiliar, because we hadn't really seen that before. Except in the first few moments of Revenge of the Sith. Those flips, by the way, out of the escape pods, very reminiscent of that opening space battle in Revenge of the Sith. A lot of very strong references to that film had a happier ending this time but I really wish they would have just gone ahead and committed to that being the crystal that fueled the Death Star it would have been a lot more meaningful and as Jimmy said it would have really made the whole search for it matter 
But anyway, still nonetheless, great episodes. And uh, wow, what tremendous performances by actors Matt Lanter and James Arnold Taylor. They really carried all of these episodes. And as fun as the uh, incidental characters were to watch and get to know, it was just, uh, it was really their show. It was really their show. So anyway, big thanks to uh, everybody here. Uh, Jimmy Mack, Kyle Newman. Kyle, what, uh, any last thoughts that you have about this arc? You know, one thing I wanted to bring up was the, the violent use of lightsabers. <laughs> Oh, right. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. He turns it on. And then there were some really great force tricks where, you know, he threw him down the shaft and then he pulled him uh, out of the situation. And there's some good banters. They're crawling around. They always find themselves in ventilation shafts. There's so many good moments with Anakin, like when he uses the gun and he shows Obi-Wan how good he is with just a blaster. Kind of uh, shows him, you know, what you can do with another weapon. That was great little sequence. I would love to have seen that fully animated but just so many great like beheadings and murders by Grievous it was like this is a violent how about when Anakin takes out the Sugi guy with both of the lightsabers that was great too and the the guy's like you're trapped you got no weapons and (laughs) And even even Obi-Wan had to say yeah that was pretty impressive (laughs) that was cool I mean there was some really good good stuff in it yeah there really was there really was. Thanks yeah. for bringing that up. I forgot about That's that great lightsaber the, play. The murders. <laughs> great murders. Yeah, yeah. Or a uh, Jimmy Mack, final thoughts. All right, Jason. Final thoughts on the Crystal Crisis on Utapau. That's kind of a fun twist. Crystal Crisis on Utapau was uh, unexpected and awesome. I really enjoyed watching it in this format. I thought it was fascinating to watch it in its unrendered state. Uh, I thought the story did not suffer at all from that. I think the story really carried very well. And the acting, of course, was superb. Uh, I really liked the Sugi Warriors. I thought those guys were really cool with their mechanical droid legs. You know, they're all little guys like that Indente guy, the big man. They're all little guys like that riding around in these mechanical spider crab legs. Um, so that was, uh, I, I thought those were really compelling looking characters. I love to see the Amanins see some action. Um, of course, they were headhunters, as uh, at least the one in Jabba's palace was known to be. We didn't see any evidence of headhunting, but we did see some cool action sequences with them. And uh, I thought they sounded really cool, even if that wasn't the finished way they were supposed to sound. I thought they sounded really cool. Um, also, that, that big monster that attacked... Uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan was based on a Ralph McQuarrie design. You could tell that in even this raw state. And uh, Paul actually bought, brought that design back for one of his McQuarrie visited uh, paintings he did for Star Wars and Zelda. So all in all, really cool. A great expansion of the saga once again. Excellent Obi-Wan and Anakin banter. All in all, very enjoyable. Certainly hope that they have more of these story reels for us in the future because I know I will not miss them. Nuke Gunray, not in this story reel. All right, that's it. We'll see you next time. And there will be a next time, I'm certain of it, here on Clone Wars Declassified. Love you all so much. For Clone Wars Declassified, I'm Jason. For Kyle Newman and and Jimmy McIntyre. What? Kyle. Cool. <laughs> I'm Jimmy Mack. <laughs> and remember, a little out of practice. <laughs> <laughs>
force will be with you always.